So, if you will, let's come to this book of Reformation, and we come to the, the case in Rome that will declare the right way of salvation. And so we will find ourselves coming into that courtroom. I'm presenting to you this gospel in a bit of a dramatic way and in a way that you would understand the legality of Paul's writings as a rabbi, as a Jewish lawyer. He understood the law quite well. So, of course, court is called to session, and uh, I'm sure Michael the archangel would have us all stand as Yahweh the judge comes into the court. Would you please stand, rise, all rise, as the king of glory comes into his court to seat, to sit upon the judge's seat. And so Yahweh God, our Father, does that. Let's bow our heads. Father, would you help us understand this case of justification and the judgment of God on sin? Amen. You may be seated. So we find ourselves in the court of law. We come to Romans chapter 4 through 5. And our defender, defender of the faith is the Apostle Paul. We begin in chapter 4. And Paul begins his argument. And so when Paul begins his argument, he calls his first witness. What kind of an attorney would not have witnesses? In fact, according to the Word of God, everything is established by what? Two or three witnesses. So Paul, defending his position that this rightness with God, this justification uh, from sin, is uh, by faith, and so he now calls his first witness. And so as Paul calls his first witness, he calls Abraham. Abraham, the father of of faith. And as he calls Abraham to the bench, he said, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And now he says this, Our forefather according to the flesh. That's a cue that Paul is speaking to the Jews. He calls forth the very father of Israel, the father of the Jews, and he says that he is our father through the flesh. So this argument is towards those who are the Judaizers, the Jews. He said, so what can we learn from Abraham? If you're going to pull any witness out that you can uh, concerning the law of God and the covenant of God, why not go right to the top and go and ask Abraham to be seated? So Father Abraham, would you please come into the courtroom and would you be seated? For if Abraham was justified by works... He's got something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. That's what was credited to him as being righteous. Not his works, but by faith he believed God. James quotes this same passage in Genesis, from Genesis 15. And so does Paul, again, in the book of Galatians, quotes the same statement, that Abraham was credited or justified by faith, not by works. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Is that right, Abraham? Righteousness was counted unto you because you believed? And Abraham would have said, of course, that's correct. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now, if you're hired to get a job done, and you do that job, you'll be paid for that wage, that job. That is your wage. You work to earn a wage. But these, these rewards were not worked, they were given. They were not owed to Abraham. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Is that right, Abraham? That it was by your belief that you were made right with God. Abraham says, yeah, that's right. Of course it is. Thank you, Abraham. I'm asking you, Abraham, if you'll take a seat. I'll come back to you later. We thank you for your witness. I'd like to call another witness to the stand at this time, Your Honor. I would like to call King David. David, would you please come and take a seat? that I may ask you these questions. 
So he goes and asks King David. Again, great witnesses. If you're going to have witnesses concerning Judaism and the law, you would ask Abraham. And of course, your second great witness is King David. Who else? So King David, would you please take the stand? We thank you, David. Would you swear by God to tell the truth, nothing but the truth and the whole truth? Of course you would. You don't, you don't have to sing right now. You can, you, yeah, just, we'll get to you. Verse 6, now David speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. King David, could I ask you a question? Were you considered righteous because of the works you had done? In other words, by the actions of your life, is that what made you righteous? And King David says, well, let me explain. Let me help you understand this. And he says, blessed are those who lawless, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. In other words, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David, why, what are you talking about? Could it be that you're making reference to the time that you and Bathsheba, uh, <clears throat> yeah, let's, yes. Could it be to the time that you counted the number of your soldiers when God expressly didn't want you to lean on the arm of flesh. Yeah, my point, Paul is saying, my point is this, David, that you're rejoicing because, in fact, God does not give out according to works because if he would, then, in fact, you'd be in hell. But blessed is the one who, by God's goodness, because of faith, we are made righteous with God, not because of our actions. If it was by our actions, there is none righteous, no, not one. Thank you, King David. You've proven my point. Even you, the greatest king of Israel, it's by faith that you have been justified, not by your works. We well know that. You may take a seat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Abraham, Father Abraham, would you please come back to the bench so that we can continue with you at this time. And he continues, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Well, of course, the prosecutors, the Judaizers, what are you getting at? We know that circumcision, and Father Abraham knows that circumcision is the reason we're God's chosen and covenant people. That circumcision brings us into covenant with the Lord. How could you dare even think that anybody could be right with God apart from the covenant of circumcision? Well, that's why I've asked Abraham to come back to the stand at this point, because I want to, in fact, cross-examine the situation with Abraham concerning circumcision. And he says, uh, Abraham, is, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after you were circumcised? Hmm. Let's take a minute here and, and do some research. Abraham, you were counted right with God, justified from sin and in favor with God's blessing because of your faith. Was this righteousness that was given to you, attributed to you, because you were circumcised? I'd like to bring your attention, everybody, to this. That in fact... Uh, if we would look at history, we would recognize that in Genesis 15, the verse declares that Abraham was made righteous because he believed. In Genesis 17, it says that Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised, and both Abraham and Ishmael were circumcised on that day. There goes my proof, says Paul, that Abraham, his righteousness was not counted to him because of circumcision, because he was counted righteous 13 years before he was circumcised. 
I rest my case. It is not by circumcision that you are made righteous. And those Judaizers in the court went, (gasps) and he goes on. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he was counted righteous. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. What does that prove? Then it is not circumcision that makes us righteous with God. It is faith. It has always been faith from first to last. Always. And so those of you who tout to be under covenant with God because of circumcision that brings you into the family of Abraham, why, in fact, it is not circumcision that makes you right with God, as John the Baptist said, that God could even make Jews out of these stones if he would want to. No, righteousness and rightness with God is by faith in trusting in his word. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised so father Abraham what I'm saying to you and what your life has demonstrated is that you are not only the father of the Hebrews But in fact, you are the model of rightness with God through faith. You are therefore the father of all those who would have righteousness by faith. And even though there could be Jews, those in the covenant of God, who have no faith, and though being circumcised, would not be in right relationship. Wow. The issue then, is not circumcision, is it? The issue is faith. The issue is faith. And he goes on to say this in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That promise was given to him before the law was ever given, That promise was given to him before he was even circumcised. That promise was given by an act of faith. And God said to Abraham, and he recounts the time, Abraham, can you tell us what God said to you? And Abraham begins to speak and he begins to tell how God had called him out of the Ur of Chaldees to leave his father's home and to follow after the one true God who created heaven and earth. And God spoke to him and said that he would make him the father of many nations and that his seed would be as many as the stars in the sky and as many as the sand on the seashores. He would become the father of many. And so what is happening in the revelation of the gospel is that Abraham isn't just populating the world through his seed of Jews, but in fact, populating the world through the seed of faith. So Abraham is now the father of us all. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be their heirs. Faith is, if that's the case, faith is null and the promise is void. Because remember, the promise came before the law. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith 
of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The father of many nations. That's the Gentiles as well. And the Jews didn't understand that until this new gospel, this new revelation was unveiled to them that it is by faith from first to last salvation comes by faith. And so Abraham was made the father of many nations. And God spoke God spoke into existence. If you'll remember this, he's, he's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do, ex- do not exist. Abraham, in hope, he believed against all hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be, as many as the stars. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, and she was 90, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham lived by faith, leaving his father's home to follow after God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And because of that right relationship with God, God entered into covenant with him in chapter 15 of Genesis. And he caused him to have covenant sign through circumcision 13 years later. And as he was Uh, waiting upon the promise of God and came to the place where he truly believed God would do what he said he'd do, even though for all express purposes, his body was as good as dead. How is he going to have a child? Sarah even laughed at the concept. But God was able to do what he promised he would do. And by faith, they bore a son, Isaac. And therefore, Faith was fulfilled through the promise of God. And so it says in verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. Do you see, just as there could be no hope that Abraham and Sarah would have a child, they they were 100 years old and 90 years old, and they had no children. Her womb was barren. But God is a God who is greater than life and death and could give life to things that were dead, and even prove that, that this whole story that played out, and that's what Paul's saying with his witness Abraham, this whole thing played out with you, Father Abraham, but your story is in fact the story of the gospel. So when there was no hope for mankind, no intercessor, no one who could save us, God sent his Son who after dying for our sin and transferring our sins upon him and was put to death, he was raised from the dead, justified to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that righteousness is now counted to us. That is amazing. That is amazing. Now, This is very important. Paul makes a legal point in his case. I think he nailed it pretty good, having Abraham and David as his two witnesses. David, of course, declaring that it's not by our works that we're ever justified. 
And Abraham showing us that it is by faith. It's always been by faith. And because of his faith, he was counted righteous. And Paul drives the point home with the fact that it's not circumcision. He proved that Abraham was counted righteous way before he was even circumcised. And so what Paul is saying is this statement that it was credited unto him, that it was counted unto him, righteousness was counted to him because of his faith. The exchange here that is the, the accounting of how faith, uh, righteousness is imputed or credited to us, the currency is faith. That when you put faith in God, what comes back to you is right relationship. And it wasn't just spoken to Abraham, it was spoken to all who would be the children of Abraham by faith. Paul takes a minute, and he's got a little child. Come up, come on up here, kid. This is extra biblical, it's not in the text. He says, why don't you sing that song you, you sang to me? Come on, little kid, sing it. And he goes, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord right, I'm Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right hand, left hand, Father Abraham. We can go on and on. That's enough, kid. Go sit down. The depth of theology behind that song is right here in Romans chapter 4. He became the father not of just the Jews, but all who would have righteousness or right relation or salvation with God by faith. And it is credited not only just to Abraham, it is credited to all of us. And what does that mean, credited? We must grasp this. It means that your account is now credited with right relationship to God. How? What's access? How do we get access to this account, this imputation? What imputed or credited means? It means that it is given to you. It's not borrowed. It doesn't just cover. It is installed into your account. Let me help you understand this. Righteousness is rightness with God. And as far as our rightness with God, the Bible says it's as filthy rags. We have no rightness with God. We were born in sin. We are broken in covenant with Him. And therefore, we have our tank of righteousness is at zero and empty. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, our sin was put upon his body, that as he hung on the cross, he represented mankind and all of our sin before a holy God. And God poured out his judgment upon all sin upon his son, Jesus Christ and taking out all punishment and wrath against sin upon his body, Jesus died to pay the price that was legally required, that the wages of sin is death. He paid the price for every human sin. He, in his purity of blood and life, had the ability and the wages to pay the price for all sin that at his death, it canceled out the law against us. And sin was reconciled once and for all. And if you would put faith in what Christ Jesus did, just as Abraham put faith in God, it is now the, the, the righteousness, the right relationship that Jesus has with the Father is now credited to your account. And your righteousness now goes from zero or empty to full. Because not of your ability, but because you trust in Christ's ability. You trusted in what Jesus did. 
And that's what's credited as rightness with you. For he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So brothers and sisters, you do not earn righteousness. It is a gift. It is given to you. How do we attain this rightness with God? Faith in what Jesus did. Now, you must understand something. This righteousness is credited to you. It is ascribed to you. The theological term is it is imputed to you. It is put into you. It is yours. So when God looks at you, he sees righteousness. Now some people say, well, actually, when God looks at you, it's Jesus that stands in front of you. So that when God's looking at you, he's seeing his son Jesus and not you. No. If I, t- I don't have any money. If, if I wrote you a check and you put it in your bank, that money is deposited in your account. I gave it to you. It is now whose possession? It is yours. And so for righteousness to be credited to you, you have to understand that you are now the righteousness of God. You have the righteousness of God. It is in your account. He doesn't paint. God doesn't put on glasses that have pictures painted of Jesus on them. When he looks at you, he does not count your sin. We've been reconciled to God, no longer counting our sins against us, 2 Corinthians says. He doesn't look at your sins now. He doesn't credit your sins now. He considers your sin life dead. Remember, it hung on the cross with Jesus. He doesn't resurrect your dead life. He sees you as the righteousness of God. Your failures, he will discipline for the sake of bringing you into the fullness of what you're becoming. But the fullness of what Christ accomplished is complete. And we don't understand that. We don't even trust it. We think we add to that righteousness by our good behavior. If that's the case, then you would detract from that righteousness by your bad behavior. And we might as well go back under the law because if that's the case, we'd all fail. You know what I'm talking about. Every thought, every word expressed. If it isn't grace that covers us in this righteousness, then it's going to be by our works. And we're all in trouble and lost. No, 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 no. The righteousness was credited or imputed or given to you by the goodness of God. And that's the declaration of Paul. It is by faith and not by works. And he said it is through Christ Jesus that we have been justified. And he finishes his statement at that point. And everybody is silenced in the courtroom and begins to ponder this concept. And all of a sudden, they hear from the judge's bench a loud gavel because it is through Christ's sacrifice that he who knew no sin became sin and the object of God's wrath so that through his resurrection we've been justified through Christ and Christ paid the price for our condemnation. He paid the price for our sin. We are now therefore justified and the gavel comes down and the judge stands up and declares that man is justified only through one means and by one payment and that is through Christ and Christ alone. Done. End of the case. There is no other name by which men can be saved. There is no other work or any goal that you can do by which you can assure rightness with God. It is only through Christ and through Christ alone by His sacrifice and His sacrifice alone. And the Father declares us justified. Chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been 
justified. We have peace with God. Now, the word therefore is a summary word. When he says therefore, he is summarizing his argument that he has presented and his two witnesses that he has presented and gives the summary by saying, therefore, since we have been past tense, this thing is done. The judge made a declaration. The judge has declared that there is only one way of salvation. This case is closed concerning how man is saved. It's done. There's only one way that there is justification. It is through faith in Christ alone. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith in Christ, we have what with God? Peace, shalom with God. God is not angry at you if you are in the Son. As you have accepted Jesus Christ and His work for you on the cross, through faith in that work, you have peace with God. God is at peace with us. Now let me make a couple points here. Who makes the declaration of justification? Is it Jesus? No. Jesus is the propitiation. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the payment. Jesus is the vehicle that reached us. Who is the one that declares that payment just and right in full? The Father. God the Father. He declares you justified. The minute you put faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, now we call it a finished work. You'll hear that term a lot in theology. Why is the cross of Jesus a finished work? Because it is finished. It is done. You can add nothing to it. Your behavior cannot add anything to your righteousness. Righteousness is Christ's righteousness credited to you. It's how well you allow that rightness to live out of your life but it is always there for you. It is His rightness. And it is a finished work. You can't add to it. God the Father declares you justified. So if God declares me justified, I must be what? Justified. But many believers do not live in the sense and in the peace and in the right sense of being at peace with God because they don't realize what was fully done for them and freely given as a gift. There are so many, and here tonight, many of you are in the mindset and in the patterns of the thought that you have to work to please God. Now, there are benefits to obedience, of course, what you sow you reap, of course, but don't ever think for a second that your salvation is based on what you have done. It's by faith and faith alone. We almost lost the doctrine of justification by faith in church history when the church had added things to it by certain uh, number of things that you were to do and penance and confessions and work that you were to perform in order to have uh, acceptance from God. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ because you can't add anything to the per perfection of Jesus. Because again, the minute you think you do, then it will also work against you. You put yourself back under the law. And this law will find you guilty every time. And so, we have been justified by the Father. And so we have this concept that God is angry with us. But oh, we have Jesus who is mediating day and night. What is he mediating for? Well, he's the mediator. We have a mediator between God and man. Because God is so angry with all of us. God hates you. He just thinks that you're the worst children ever. 
He's constantly angry. But Jesus is constantly soothing his temper. Oh, Father, forgive them. I died for them. Don't hurt them. Yes, they sinned again, but don't. No, don't let them get in a car accident. Protect them, God. Is God that senile that he would forget he's the one who justified you? If God the Father justified you, does he need to remain angry at you? No. The sin issue is done. Hebrews tells us that when Christ returns, he's not coming to deal with sin. He's coming to receive his own. Sin's done. There's much more to deal with this later. We'll get there. But understand this. Jesus is not interceding between you unto the Father. Jesus is interceding from the Father to you. He's trying to get you to comprehend what your inheritance is. He's trying to get you to understand how much He is pouring out blessing and ministry and life to you. He's not trying to minister to a frustrated God who's mad at you. He's trying to minister the joy of God to a frustrated people. Because we don't comprehend our justification. Let us continue. What happens now is that this court case, this legal document that was a discussion on how one is saved has now just been answered within the first five chapters and now it's been declared there's only one way of salvation and rightness with God. It is by faith. It's always been by faith and it is through the finished work of Jesus Christ and His cross and what He accomplished. And if that's the case, then this no longer is a case Judaizing, adjudicating whether how salvation is. This is now a case of adoption rights. This now turns into a case of how much you'll receive as benefits of being the heir of one who has saved you. Now it becomes legal action for those of you who have been adopted by God so that we can now discuss your inheritance rights. First of all, you have peace with God. You can therefore enter His throne room boldly with confidence, that you can find mercy and grace in a time of need whenever you have it, the writer of Hebrews declares. Let's go on and see what else now legally, let me say it, legally by God's actions becomes your inheritance. Since we've been justified with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Wow. By this faith, we can now receive grace. We have access to the grace of God. Let me help you understand these terms. Justice, mercy, and grace. We didn't understand what justice was till God introduced the law to the promise. Many people think that salvation is based on the law. No, salvation is based on the promise given to Abraham. And the Bible tells us that the law was added to the promise. It was temporary. It was called a tutor, an instructor, that helped everyone understand that the promise given to us is that we would have salvation. And the law was added to reveal what justice was. That in God's justice, there's none righteous, no, not one, and none of us can earn this. And that's what its job was. Once Christ came, he nailed that law to the cross because its effectiveness was no longer needed because Christ himself fulfilled all justice. Justice means you get what you deserve. Right? Little children say this all the time. It's one of the first uh, things they come to a knowledge of, and they say this. It's not fair. Right? Some of you still say that. (laughs) We complain to God. It's not fair. By just means, true justice, if you want fairness, we're all going to hell. 
for our sin continues. But it should not be. But that's what justice is. You get what you deserve. That's justice. Mercy says, I will pardon you from what you deserve. Grace means, I will give you what you don't deserve. Wow. That's what we've been given. Justice was met for us in Christ Jesus. And so he paid the price of what we owed. Justice was served. Sin was never ignored. And it was paid a high price. Justice was served at the cross. And Christ took the justice of God because he loved us. Mercy was given to you and I because what we deserved was pardoned. But grace was poured into us because what we don't deserve, he's given us himself and his love. So by faith, Paul says, we now have access to this grace. Come on. Which says, whatever you need, you call me. You call on me. Whatsoever you ask of in my name, I shall give you. This is the grace of God. He has given you access to the grace of the Father. He's given you access to ask and to approach him and to have full access to his benevolence. So why would we not ask? You have not because you ask not. He goes on then to say this. That's what faith did for us. Faith gave us access to the grace that we now stand in. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So he gave us faith, but now he also gives us hope. With this hope, we have eternal life. Verse 3 says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Or patience. And patience produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. In other words, we're not disappointed because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Faith, hope, and love. That is what we have access to. These three things abide, Paul tells us. Faith, which gives us access to the grace of God, this grace is sufficient for all our needs. And this grace now gives us hope that it in fact even redeems our suffering. You see, if you don't know Jesus, suffering has no purpose whatsoever. That is why the atheist cannot say God is a good God. He sees too much suffering and he cannot account for it. And he can't understand how a good God could allow such suffering. But those of you who have access to the grace of God can understand that even what I suffer has redeeming value because it is changing me into what I'm becoming eternally. And so what I suffer, I gain patience. And my patience develops character of Christ-likeness. And this character produces a hope that I am Christ. That Christ is in me, giving me the hope of His glory in any situation in this life. Because what I suffer here can't compare to the glory that I'm going to have in Him. I've got hope. We don't grieve like other people who grieve. We have hope. All because this faith that justified us and gave us access to the grace which gave us hope through all that we are suffering and enduring because we handle it all because the love of God is being poured into my heart by the indwelling of God's own nature. This is an inheritance. This thing is now shifted. If you lack understanding the love of God, ask for it. If you have no hope today, ask for it. You've got access to it. You've got access to hope despite everything and every situation. And by faith, even the faith of a mustard seed. God never measures how much faith you have. He measures how small your faith is. 
Isn't that a paradox? People always say, well, this didn't happen, that didn't happen, you didn't have enough faith. I find it interesting that in the gospel, every time the disciples didn't have enough faith, Jesus still did what they asked and what they needed. And he said, it's not you have to have faith this big to move a mountain. He said you need to have faith as small as a mustard seed. You have faith. Activate it. If the small mustard seed faith can move a mountain, what's going to happen when your faith increases? But this benevolent grace is poured into us. Now, he goes on and he says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were His enemies, and He died for us. That's a demonstration of His love. Since therefore we have now been justified, let me say it again, Since therefore we have now been justified. Past tense, it's a done deal. It is declared. It's declared over your life. Since therefore we've been justified by His blood. By His blood we've been justified. People always say the cross. The cross was just a vehicle to hang a body on. It's not the cross. I understand why we look at the cross. That's the thing that hung Him there. But that's not what was the thing that bought your redemption. It's the blood. It's the blood. It's the blood. I find it interesting that some churches and people want to eliminate songs about the blood. It's too gruesome. It's too primal. It's too brutal. You can't leave out the blood. That's the payment. By blood is the remission of sins. And it is by His blood and faith in His blood that we are saved. Now, we don't have to get all crazy. Don't go to your neighbor and say, that cross means nothing. (laughs) It's my pastor said it's the blood. The cross points to the blood. I get it, okay? It's the crucifixion. But let's never forget it's the blood. Much Listen to this. Since, therefore, now that we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? You see, Paul says this to the Thessalonians that we will not receive the wrath of God because we've been protected by the blood. We'll be saved from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more shall we be saved by His life? Oh, wait a minute. We went too fast. Catch what he's saying. If you have been reconciled to the Father, what does reconcile mean? Restored, right relationship, righteousness. We use the term salvation. If you've been restored, reconciled, saved by the death of Jesus, how much more shall we be? That word saved is better rendered delivered. Same word, it means to deliver something. See, here's our problem. We've used the word saved so much that all we think it means is saying the sinner's prayer and getting saved, having salvation. It means so much more than that. The word sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo, means to be saved, delivered, healed, whole, full, complete. It means all of that. If you and I We're delivered from sin because of his death. How much more shall we be delivered by his what? By his life. Oh, I'm sorry. Did some of you leave him in the grave? Is Jesus still in the grave? Is Jesus still on the cross? Where is Jesus? Is he alive? Is that his life? So how much more? If his one-time death 2,000 years ago saved you, what will his life that he's living now deliver you to? 
Do you see what's going on? It is a present active tense of Jesus' involvement and pouring of love and hope and faith into you right now. It's constant. It's nonstop. He will never die. Therefore, nor will all of his promises and blessings ever die. They'll never cease towards you. They never stop flowing towards you. He never stops interceding for you. He never stops following after you and dwelling in you. He never quits on you. Love never fails on you. How much more will we be delivered by his living if we were saved by his death? How many celebrate his death and nothing more? How many don't understand a living and active Messiah who is interceding day and night and his spirit dwelling in us, active and moving and and being alive in us now? We've got too many churches that are just celebrating his death. And I'm not minimizing his death. But there's so much more since he's alive. Even more than that. Oh, come on. See, that's the thing. It's always even more, even more, even more. Listen. There's enough but gods in the scripture and even more than that that we can't keep track of it. You know why God gave a gift of tongues is because we don't have enough language to even say how good he is. We don't have enough language to put on the majesty of God. We don't have enough words to describe his greatness, his amazingness, and his activities. If his death did this, what about his life? And then he says, and I can't stop there, how much more that we would rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now received reconciliation. Paul has shifted this court case from a defense of the gospel to now a declaration of an inheritance. And he spends the rest of these next three chapters describing what you and I will inherit. Case closed for the night.